Hello, Dr. Grossman. What a pleasure to see you and talk to you today. Uh, we have a bona fide uh, medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and author with us today. And you've written a, a remarkable book that uh, I've I've read and I would love to talk to you about. So thanks for being on Conversations with Peter Bogosian. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm so happy to be here. It's taken a while, but I'm yes. sure it's worth the wait. Yes, life life is throwing everybody some curves. So you how did you first get into the get involved in the trans topic? Like how like what why would a medical doctor be involved in that? Why would a psychiatrist be involved in that? Yeah. Well, I got involved with it because I discovered 15 years ago, Peter, long time ago, I discovered that kids are being told that male and female are human inventions the inventions of white straight men invented like me <laughs> <laughs> and reed <laughs> so yeah you and reed invented this concept of male and female and it's a faulty concept and it's an oppressive concept hmm. so i discovered that kids were being told this stuff many years ago, and I actually warned parents about it in a book that I wrote in 2009. And that was a book on sex education. Huh. And it was called, You're Teaching My Child What? So among many, many things that I discovered when I was exploring sex education, and the reason I was exploring it, Peter, was because so many of my young patients had sexually transmitted infections, abortions, uh, fears of having HIV. When you say young, you mean like how young? College students. Okay. I was working, oh, you're in LA. I was working at UCLA at their student counseling center. And so I was seeing UCLA students, undergrads, graduate kids, you know, these are the creme de la creme of, uh, of students, the, the top 3% of the high schools in California, very bright kids, ambitious kids. And uh, regardless of that fact, they were making very poor decisions about their sexual behavior, decisions that put them at risk for infection and abortions and, and other, other uh, uh, consequences or sequelae, as we would say in the world of medicine. And so I had all these really bright young women and men who would come in and they had depression or anxiety, trouble sleeping yeah. at night, and we'd start to talk. And I discover in many cases that they were upset and worried about a diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection. So I started to dive into what kids are being told about their sexual health, about staying healthy. Okay. And I discovered that uh, instead of a message such as what we're doing in terms of diet and exercise and many other areas, instead of a, a, a message of making wise decisions and uh, being very cautious and uh, uh, 
a message that would say to kids that sex is wonderful, but like every, you know, it's an appetite, but like every appetite, it needs to be restrained. And that if it's not restrained, you're going to pay a price for that. But instead, I found that organizations like Planned Parenthood and there's a group called SECUS, which you probably never heard of. I discovered that they promote uh, sexual freedom. So Meaning what? What does that mean? That means whatever everybody's you do, having like, sex with everybody. Yeah. Whatever age, whenever you feel like it, don't let anyone tell you when you're ready. Don't let anyone tell you that it's best to wait. Any, any know, age, any age, like 10. Well, are you kidding? These people believe their philosophy, the sex educators philosophy, which is based on Kinsey. They yeah. believe that, that, children, even infants, are sexual beings, and that we have to acknowledge their erotic potential. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these original people that uh, came up with these ideas in the 50s and 60s, they were pedophiles, and they were very disturbed you, individuals. You wrote about that in your book, like John Money. Correct. So the way that I got, the way I discovered the whole gender issue is from studying what's in sex education. And I kind of just uh -huh. stumbled across it because I was looking at what they say about STDs and condoms and abortions and so on and so forth. And then I just came to this material, which was so bizarre, Peter, I could hardly believe what I was seeing, that male and female are faulty concepts uh, that were that 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 came from the minds of uh, of white European heterosexual men in order to oppress women and sexual minorities, and that you know there's no science behind it, and that um, there's there's something called gender which has priority and overrides our physical sex. Gender yeah. is gender is our feelings, our experience of being male or female or neither or both, and that gender overrides your physical reality. And that's how we got to where we are right now. Which, okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is how we got to the current mass psychosis of believing, exactly. believing that feelings override physical reality. I think mass psychosis is, is, is the perfect way to frame it as well. So two things. One, the first is you wrote that the, the foundation is rotten. And I think that's, I'd like to talk about that. And then when you, so you're a medical doctor, you're a practicing psychiatrist and often people, and I'm not, demeaning anybody i'm not saying anything negative like often the people who are in this space are not medical doctors which which is fine it doesn't mean you're disqualified or anything but i want to take advantage of the fact that you you are a, a, a licensed board certified physician and and talk about it from that aspect please so what is your experience been like treating these adolescents and their families well i would say peter that it's probably been the most difficult challenge in my career, which has been a long career of 
treating all sorts of individuals, including working in a prison for four years mm. with severely mentally ill people who uh, committed violent crimes. Um, and that was tough, you know, taking care of people who, because they were psychotic, they murdered their parents or their life partners or their children. Jeez. But you see, that those things happened because of terrible diseases like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But this current crop of kids that I'm seeing now, their difficulties are man-made. And they are sustained in, because of the culture and because of the internet and social media and you know government health organizations and the American Academy of Pediatrics. So yes, it's, it's, yes. it's difficult in that way. It's also difficult, Peter, because so many young people are deeply, deeply indoctrinated to the point where 100%, it, it's 100%. beyond it's beyond psychiatry. It's it's really an issue of of a cult, you know, being recruited into a cult. Yeah, that's really interesting. Travis Brown is who has a, a nonprofit is making a documentary he wrote the woke reformation and he said exactly what you said that without question this is the most difficult thing he's ever done just emotionally he's talking to detransitioners and he's talking to these kids and it's um i mean it is so, so usually i mean i don't know i don't know i'm talking to a psychiatrist and so i'm very <laughs> very aware of that right now but usually when tell someone tells me something and they say listen man my mental health is not well i i don't know what i'm doing Almost always, I will say to them, "Well, look, you got to back off, or what have you." But in in this case, when he was telling me what a toll it was doing to him, and I don't know, maybe this is terrible advice, but I said, "Someone needs to do this. Like, it, the, like this madness is insane. I mean, we're literally mutilating the genitals of children." And I don't know, maybe that was bad advice for him, but. Um, but I do. I have also heard what you've 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 said from psychologists, not from psychiatrists, who treated people and actually have treated people's parents, whose their children is a transitioner or detransitioner. So that must be incredibly harrowing. So I'm going to ask you a couple of things that I've been thinking about a lot. Does it ever? Because I had an interview with Helen Joyce. Does it ever? She started me thinking about these things. Does it ever make sense for anyone to identify as trans? And is there like a kind of a, I don't know, like a medical test that we can run on someone and look at their brain or whatever A1 sees? I mean, I have no idea what it would be and say, <laughs> aha, here we go. Like this person is all the markers of trans. I mean, talk to me about that. Help me understand. I, I, I wish there was, I wish you could do an A1C <laughs> I, I just threw that out there, but yeah. yeah. Um, no, the answer is no, absolutely not. There is nothing like that because these individuals are physically 100% healthy. I, we're not talking about people who are intersex and might have some chromosomal abnormality um, or right. endocrine abnormality, you know, which would put them in a different category. We're talking overall right now about this new group 
new, I mean, within the past 10 years or so, the explosion, the skyrocketing of cases of um, mostly adolescents and mostly girls with no history of any discomfort with their bodies. Um, and they rather suddenly, after being immersed in social media or um, you know, making a new a friend group in which there are one or more members who are also identifying as as non uh, non uh, how should I put it not identifying with their biology. Let's put it that way. And so this is a new group. Now, is there something you know? We we've always known, and I explain in the book that we've known for like decades, if not a hundred years, that there are extremely rare individuals, some of whom from a early age, you know, from the earliest memory that they have in their lives, somehow feel like they are in the wrong body. Correct. Again, they're physically healthy. That's a fact. That is factually correct. Yes, we do. But we also know that those are have always mostly been boys. I mean, for every girl that would fit into that description, there would be six or seven boys. And we know from many studies on these kids that if they go through a normal puberty, then by the time they hit their uh, early adulthood, they no longer wish to be in a different body. They have reached uh, a, a feeling of, of satisfaction and acceptance with their bodies. They may be gay, many of them are gay or lesbian, but they no longer uh, see themselves as the opposite sex. So that's a very big deal. Something yeah. happens in adolescence, okay, that is allowing them to outgrow this. The other population that we've known about for a long, long time are those of mostly middle-aged heterosexual men who enjoy cross-dressing, and some of them at some point in their lives, often after they've been married and had families, such as, for example, Admiral Dr. Levine, oh, yes. make a decision that they wish to live the rest of their lives uh, presenting as women. Uh, I say presenting as women, not as women, because they can oh, never be... I'll just take a moment here. You emphasize that I'm an MD. So let me yes. emphasize that male and female are established at conception. When the egg and the sperm unite, that creates either a male or female embryo. The embryo grows into a fetus. The fetus grows into an infant and into an adult. And that can never change. So even with the most sophisticated medical interventions and the best surgery in the world, which can present very convincing results, of course, that person is not an actual male or female. They are living as a male or female. They are presenting to the world as a male or female. They are not an actual male or female. Okay. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So you asked me if there is such a thing as being transgender. I would say yes, of course. And there are people that suffer hugely from this condition. It's a it it it, it 
I can only imagine, I mean, to wake up every day and feel that you were born in the wrong body. It, 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 it is a, it, it, you know, the suffering is great and they deserve our compassion and they deserve the best treatment that exists. However, we're talking about now something that's happened over the past several years that is very different from those two categories that I just explained in which, you know, it's the, the, um, the feeling of being in the wrong body is an inner, it is coming from some sort of inner process. Whereas what we're seeing now is kids that are learning about this condition online and they're right. being told by their friends and their guidance counselor or their pediatrician that the solution to their emotional problems is going to be, you know, transitioning and living as the opposite sex. These kids have a lot transitioning. of transitioning. These kids have a lot of psychiatric issues. They have a history of trauma, autism, depression, anxiety, and they are being led to believe falsely led to believe that they may be actually the opposite sex. And that that is the reason that they're having difficulties with, with their emotions, making friends, you know, uh, ha having all kinds of anxiety or depressive symptoms. It's because they were born in the, in the wrong body. That is a dangerous message to give to these kids, but they are, they are falling for it. You know, there's an epidemic of kids now. It, the percentages are up by something like 5,000%, the number of kids who are rejecting their biologies. And they're coming in, you know, they're, they're going to their parents and insisting that they uh, want hormones, they want puberty blockers and opposite sex hormones and sometimes surgeries. And the parents are blindsided. And sure. it's, it, it, that's why I wrote the book. I'm also seeing parents, by the way, Peter, I see the kids and the parents. I have an entire chapter in the book about the plight of parents, which people are not recognizing. And my profession, the mental health profession has abandoned the parents utterly. Yeah. Abandoned I, and I want to, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, because we talk about the kids and the transitions, there's nothing wrong with that. that. That's fine. That's great. That's important. Great. But what we really don't talk about as much as we ought to talk about, perhaps, is the the parents' trauma. So what's it what's it like when you have patients? Like when you, I mean, what's that like? Do they come in? Do they cry? Are they angry? I mean, what what's going on there? A confused? Maybe they're just confused, befuddled. Well, it's a complex trauma. Okay, trauma is the result of uh, experiencing something in which you feel threatened in a very deep way, either you or someone you love. You feel helpless and... Um, that's, that's what these, these parents are going through. They're going through complex trauma and, and they are isolated now less because, you know, thank God there are a lot of parent support groups now. 
They're yeah. being ignored. They're being widely, well, not widely enough, but they are being acknowledged. Their plight is being acknowledged. I, I believe that I was the first person, at least the first professional person to stand up publicly. I think that's correct. Yeah. And say, look at what is happening to these parents. We have to discuss the kids. Of course, as you just said, of course, we have to talk about the kids. But we have to acknowledge the trauma to these parents. So to answer your question, um, these parents remind me of parents who, um, you know, ha have just gone through the most devastating loss, the loss of a, of, of, of a, a loved one, the sudden inexplicable loss. But you see, it's more than that because the person's still there. Your kid is still there. It's just an altogether different child, different physically, different emotionally. The child in a way has become unrecognizable. Yeah. And the child has beyond the fact, or I should say, in addition to the fact that the child is convinced of this new identity. Yeah. The child has also been convinced, has been indoctrinated to think that anyone that challenges that identity is toxic, that, that their parents, their loving, devoted. Correct. I'm telling you, Peter, these are the most loving and devoted parents. These parents will do, I've worked with all kinds of families. I know that there are troubled families, parents who sure. abuse their kids, you know, abandon their kids don't give their kids the treatment, the medical care that the kid needs. Okay, I've seen that. I've reported parents to Child Protective Services in my life, in my role working as a child psychiatrist in an emergency room. And I am telling you that that's not these families. These families will go to the end of the earth for their children. They will do anything but they won't deny reality and they will not consent to, to these risky uh, experimental treatments that are going to cause lifelong disfigurement and uh, sexual dysfunction and even uh, sterility. They will not agree to that. Okay. So they, they're stuck. I'll just finish a minute. You see, yeah. they're stuck. They're on a tightrope. They want to hold on to their child that they desperately love and want to correct. Right. But they're on this tightrope because in 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 their insistence on reality and their reluctance or the, their their uh, yeah their their re refusal to go along with the medicalization, they risk losing their child. Right. So let's let's say a parent is watching this, and I'm sure a lot of parents who are struggling with this are, are, are going to tune into this. And they're probably thinking to themselves, because, I mean, this is what I'd be thinking to myself. I was, you know, how do I figure out, how do I figure this whole thing out? And I guess... My question to you is, are there any times where a parent should affirm their child is the opposite gender 
this who thinks they're born in the wrong body and why or why not well i i i never say never okay um every family is different every case is different but i would say it would be so extraordinarily rare that a family would we're talking about minors now but i would say young adults as well i, I would say all adults okay i would say it should be extraordinarily rare okay but but could it happen and you know could could the family feel that they're just taking too high of a risk in not doing so because they could lose that person the person could become estranged which right. does happen quite a lot every family has to make every person really sometimes the husband and wife or the you know the the parents may disagree and one parent may want to go in one direction and affirm and the other parent disagrees so that's also a difficult situation but yeah. to answer your question yeah you know i i can't i i tell that i tell parents that they have to think on it and and really take their time and 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 talk with other parents and get the support of other parents who have been there and who are going through it and talk to detransitioners and then right, make a right. careful decision and they might change their mind at some point it's a very difficult question, but overall, yeah, I would say that it should be rare. Okay, so do you think, Dr. Grossman, do you think that a large part of, of the cause of this is an excess of empathy, perhaps good intentions leading to harm? I'm going to answer that. I'll just add something to my last answer. Sure, sure. I think that parents can be very creative and other relatives with names. So you don't have to go the full way and use the opposite sex name. You may be able to come up with a nickname that, that may satisfy the child. I give a lot of advice on the topic of names and on the topic of how to have these discussions with your child in the book. Yes. Okay, so you just asked me, where does this come from? Does this come from misplaced empathy? In some cases, absolutely it does. But that's not at the bottom of it. Okay. At, at the bottom of it is a social movement, a um, uh, changing society, uh, you know, ha having the goal of um, erasing male and female eliminating male and female as as biological categories uh that all humans fit into i believe that's the the goal and the, i think the goal is also chaos so chaos are queering categories uh breaking those quote-unquote gender binaries in the research literatures um research is of course in quotes the gender studies literatures on querying one of the i just have so many questions flooding my mind but one of the the things that 
I've heard you speak about it on podcasts that I think very few people speak about. So we have different categories of things here. We have your experience treating your patients, some of whom are people experiencing this condition, some of whom are parents, some of whom maybe even, I, I bet you've even have, have talked to friends and family in, in your practice, I'm assuming. But we have something else we haven't talked about at all that I've heard you speak about that that I personally think is extremely important that we ought to be talking about more. And that's the capitulation of the medical establishment and peer-reviewed journals to this. And, and I was wondering if you could please speak to that because I have deep, deep concerns about the integrity of the peer review process and the corruption that's overtaken it. And, and the, to, to be blunt with you, the, the corruption that's overtaken our, not just the peer review process in our institutions, but our elite academic institutions like the, the, I don't know if you followed the scandal, the president of Harvard and, and plagiarism, et cetera. Um, but not to go down that rabbit hole. It's one of my favorite things to talk about now. But but that is endemic of a deeper sense of corruption. And I was wondering if you could speak to that in the context of a practicing physician in your field, both in terms of medical institutions and the peer-reviewed journals. Sure. Thank well, you. your your deep concern is appropriate. I wish that everyone shared your deep concern. Uh I explain in the book how through the decades, um, the, our, our established uh, medical organizations uh, were, were captured by gender ideology, by activists. And it, it, it wasn't all of a sudden that, you know, people always ask me, how did this just happen in the past few years out of the blue? I mean, I never heard of any of this stuff. No, no, it's going on a long time. It was in the universities, gender studies, sex education, like I said earlier, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychiatric Association, all these places uh, over the past few decades uh, allowed a, 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 cru a crusade of activism to take over um, certain committees you know, that, that may have been charged with the responsibility of coming up with policy statements and guidelines for doctors. It's a um, long march through the institutions. Correct. I think as Christopher Russo, Rufo has put it so well, there has been a march through the institutions. But you see, the parents don't know that. See, that's exactly the problem. I, I just, so the, the, the problem is that in many ways, the parents are epistemic victims in a different way than if the children are epistemic victims in terms of a type of contagion. The parents are, and also I would even add that many practicing professionals are also victims because they rely upon the peer-reviewed literature to guide them because they believe that it's based upon the best available evidence that people try to falsify as opposed to forward narratives. And the problem is that you have some incredibly well-intentioned people operating on the basis of what they think is evidence, but it's actually a corrupt body of literature. And then that in turn causally corrupts these institutions. You, you can say that the causal chain runs the other way. I'm, that's fine. That's a little bit too granular. But the basic idea is that you have a wholesale system of corruption in which 
the purpose of the journals, the purpose of the institutions is to forward certain narratives as opposed to try to figure out what's true. And then, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is my perception of the issue because I see this reified in academia. Then what happens is parents act upon shibboleths or they act upon what they think is evidence clinicians act upon what they think is evidence is actually not evidence it's the musings of ideologues and they advise their patients according to what they believe the best evidence is but which is actually not evidence at all okay that's okay. I, I would put it more simply i would say yeah, like <laughs> that was a long rant sorry <laughs> when you take your kid to your pediatrician yeah you see that pediatrician is very busy she or he doesn't have the time to sit down and start reading journals and peer review and all the rest of it. What that pediatrician does is she trusts the American Academy of Pediatricians. Correct. Yep. yep. Okay. And what she does, like, look, I'm a child psychiatrist. If I get a patient with OCD and I want to see what is what are the recommendations of my organization, the American Academy of Child Medicine and Psychiatry, when it comes to OCD, like what are the most recent recommendations? I don't right. have time. I can't sit down and read a pile of journals. Okay. So I go to the website of the American Academy of Child Medicine Psychiatry. Okay. The pediatrician goes to what the AAP, the American uh, Association of the American Academy of Pediatricians, and they will just look at the guidelines and they'll figure, oh, well, this must have been you know, there must have been a consensus. This was reviewed. Right, this right. was debated. This has got to be right. I mean, I trust my, when you go to medical school, yeah. and you do a internship and a residency. It's by osmosis. It's inculcated in us that we treat, we trust our medical organizations. And it used to be that way. We used to be able to trust them. But no longer, we cannot trust them anymore. Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you said that. There's. I've been speaking about this for so long now. There's a crisis of legitimacy in the institutions, but the reason for that crisis is because that the institutions have betrayed their founding principles. The institutions no longer do what they say they're going to do. They're beholden to the morally fashionable, in this sense, gender ideology, which is demonstrably demonstrably harming people. And so maybe this is slightly outside your purview, but I'd like to ask your opinion on this. What is the best way, or if, if at all it's even possible, is there any way to get out of this, this problem? Is there a way to restore trust in medical journals in you know, like the AMA? Is there, is there, is, is it to build new institutions? Is it, you know, what do you think, the best way to get out of this catastrophe is okay. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to answer. I look at it on the, on the micro as well as the macro, the micro is each family, right? Okay. That's the micro level. And that's why I wrote the book. I want to reach parents before they're in this crisis, right? When exactly. their children, yeah. When their children are still little or, you know, they don't have this thing going on in their home. What can they do? So, you know, I address that in the book in many different ways. 
Now, so that's the micro. And there's so much that parents can do. Parents shouldn't feel hopeless against this because there okay. is so much. You know, get control of your kid's internet use. Know what's going on in the schools. Educate your kid about gender from an early age and, and many, many other things. But the macro in terms of the institutions. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Okay, we're already beginning. No, we're already beginning to see some movement. What I what I mean, for example, is that the American Academy of Pediatrics is now being named in lawsuits. Lawsuits that are being brought by people who were harmed by medical uh, interventions, you know, uh, by 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 medically transitioning, quote unquote. So these young people who uh, have been seriously harmed uh, emotionally and physically for the possibly for the rest of their lives are standing up and they are getting in touch with uh, with lawyers. Who, I'm very pleased to say that in the past few years. And I was waiting, like, where are the lawyers when I found out about all this 15 years ago? Yeah. So finally, yeah, there are lawyers that are exclusively working on helping these young people. And they are not only suing the individual doctors and therapists, they are suing the organizations. The American Academy of Pediatrics uh, is being sued. This is like the best news I've truly heard all month. Here's my, I don't know, concern might not be the right word, but the people who, the surgeons who have butchered these children and the administrative staff that has facilitated this butchery, are they going to get off scot-free because the surgeons are going to point to these peer-reviewed articles and institutions and say, we were just following best practices. We, you know, we, we had thought at the time we were doing what was right. And we, you know, we had that we operated under the base of the best available evidence. It turns out we were wrong, but we did, we, we discharged our duty to the best of our abilities. And consequently, these, I, I, it's hard for me to not use a negative, you know, to be pejorative about this, but the people who performed these ghastly surgeries, they're just going to get off scot-free. Well, or, or am I wrong about that? If I, I love, I would love to be wrong about that. Dr. Grossman, please tell me I'm wrong. I think, like in so many things, Peter, it's going to depend on the judge. You know, it's going to, it's really, I certainly hope they won't get off. Um, but yeah, they're going to point to, the organizations that, you know, held up these guidelines that have poor or very poor evidence back. And, and it says it. the amazing thing is that if you look at the actual guidelines, for example, the Endocrine Society guidelines, which are consistently used as a, you know, the evidence for, for doing all these things, the, the, puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones. And it, but if you look inside at the actual guidelines, you'll see that the evidence, it's right there. The evidence is either poor or very poor. So 
So you think whether or not these people are going to get away with it, and I've always advocated that not only should they not get away with it, but every single person in the administration and a hospital administration, particularly the people in the upper echelons of the hospital, including the president, they should be held criminally responsible for this. You, you think that there's a kind of, and again, I understand you're not, you're a medical doctor, you're not a lawyer. Um, do, do you see anybody be, being held responsible for this? In ter- by anybody, I mean, I mean the um, the surgeons and those who facilitated the, their ghastly behavior. They're- look, it, look at what's happened in Scandinavia and in Europe. The way that they brought this to if not an end, let's say a pause, is that their medical authorities reviewed the evidence and they they concluded that the evidence is non-existent in terms of long-term benefit, but there is plenty of evidence for harm. So, so in countries like Sweden and Norway and Finland and, and uh, in Britain, and in, in other countries that are also concerned, the way that it's being done is through their, um, the medical authorities are stepping up and uh, they're able to, to achieve this. But we have a different system here. We, we, we don't have that. We, they have socialized medicine. So they have more of a centralized right, right. You know, way of, of doing things, gathering data and making decisions and looking at things, examining things. We don't have that. So it looks like in this country, it's going to be done through the legal system. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to. So, let, 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 let me let me push back on that, because I believe that the problem is far more profound than that. And, and please t- tell me if my my thinking is in error. I think that the recent. Uh, and, and you mentioned Rufo, the, the recent reporting that look, the president of Harvard is a plagiarist period. I mean, we not only is she a plagiarist, she's a serial plagiarist. And so the the reason I'm mentioning that is to, to push back. I don't think that this is a case of evidence. I don't think these people ever concern, were, were concerned about evidence. I think that these this is a vicious ideology that is impervious to evidence. And that's why maybe I'm more pessimistic than you, but, but is my, but if my thinking is off, like, I don't think it's just a matter of, Oh, well, we show people the evidence who, who believe in mutilating the genitals or transitioning. I'll give them, I'll, I'll use the, the neutral transitioning children. And then, Oh, I've seen the evidence. I realize that this isn't, no, or is there something ghastly, super creepy going on there? Okay. There is some ghastly, super creepy things going on, but but that that's not every single individual who happens to be, you know, signing off on this. There are well-meaning people who are terribly misinformed, like you said earlier. And then there are people who are funding, you know, in, in huge, huge amounts, you know, the the the. Uh, the uh, transhumanists, the you know e- extraordinarily wealthy and powerful uh, 
transgender individuals who believe in transhumanism and they are looking to change the world we live in. They think that this will be a, a better world. Yeah, and you in your book, you wrote about the Castro consensus. Could you please explain that? Well, a Castro consensus, I didn't make up that term. Yeah. It's used to, uh, to describe a, a consensus that is not a consensus because, you know, Castro was, uh, ha he, there were elections in Cuba over many, many decades in which Castro was the declared winner of, of those uh, elections, so-called democratic elections. The thing is that uh, it was impossible for anyone else to win. Right. Because, you know, so he would proclaim after winning yet another election that the people of Cuba have spoken, you know, and there's a consensus and they have chosen him yet again to be their leader. But there is no consent that that's called a Castro consensus. So the reason that I use that term in the book is because there is no consensus in medicine when it comes to these treatments, you know, gender affirming care, how to help these kids, um, what it is that they're suffering from, what we should do in response to help them. Um, we are told that there is a, cons a medical consensus and that there is everyone except a few fringe dinosaur individuals like myself and a few others, everyone agrees that we have to affirm these kids and put them on a track toward medicalization. No, that it's it's a Castro consensus. It's not a real consensus at all. Um, when the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Psychological Association or the Endocrine Society, all these groups come out with their statements, their policy statements, they have not in no way or fashion, have they had any sort of open debate? To the contrary. Okay. Okay. So washing debate. Right. So isn't uh, you you anticipated where I was going to go with this? So isn't that alone a red flag? And that should be a red. No, no, nobody nobody does that with like I don't know hip replacements. <laughs> no nobody. So why 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 would this one thing be exempt from medical scrutiny? I mean that. That alone should make people extraordinarily skeptical, coupled with the fact that I'm 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 quite certain we've never spoken before. It's the first time we've spoken, but I've, I'm quite certain that you've had all so sorts of nastiness hurled at you. And please correct me if I'm wrong because of your beliefs. So you're smiling, so I take it that's a yes. But shouldn't a rational, independent observer, someone who has no dog in the fight, look at the fact that people who advocate certain positions are being smeared as opposed to being presented with evidence. Uh, any kind of reasoned, it doesn't even have to be a debate, reasoned conversation is squashed and institutions are making medical policy pronouncements without a serious discourse. I mean, that alone should tell people that there's something wrong here. Even if it's about like knee surgery, right? I mean, independent of what, of, of of what the issue would be. Well, of course, but we we only have our side 
um, reporting on this and making it available to the public. And in the meantime, you have a, a huge population of families and parents who are unknowingly walking into these gender clinics and being told transition or suicide. Yeah. Do you want a dead daughter or a live son? And they're scared. The parents are scared. I don't. I don't blame them. I mean, you don't. I mean, of course. Yeah. We. we it, and it must be a terrible thing because you're entrusted the most important job in your life is is you're a parent and you're trusted to the well-being of your children. And the the consequence of that is you want to act upon. Maybe people wouldn't frame it in terms of evidence, but in terms of some kind of medical expertise. I don't know. I, I find this, uh, my friend Michael Schellenberg and I were talking about this, and this is a uniquely, um, I don't know, not not uniquely stupid, but it's just a uniquely disturbing. Yeah, it's a uniquely disturbing phenomenon in, in the way that, and, and it's also uniquely absurd in the way that other things simply are not just like i think the way either michael or i described it is it's like extra crazy there's some extra crazy going on here and and i know you that's probably a vulgar term that you don't use in in psychiatry but <laughs> there, there, there's a kind of 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 extra i don't know d divorcement from you know, reality either. I read something recently and I didn't look it up, but maybe you can tell me if this is true or not. I read that a very prominent, dangerous demagogue in history once said, well, I'll just say it was Hitler, said that you there's no there's no point in a small lie. Oh yeah, that yeah 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 yeah. That's Make actually the case. Big yeah, right, right, right. He also referred to the uh, Armenian genocide, among other things, uh, uh, in the context of that. But and so, so, yeah, so go the, ahead. the big lie here is that male and female are not at the very core of of our humanity, and that they are constructs man-made faulty constructs, dangerous constructs, and that instead of those constructs, it's a person, even a two-year-old's uh, inner belief or inner experience that constitutes reality. That's the lie. So the lie, and we can talk about whether or not that's impervious to evidence. My daughter's friend said something very interesting to me. She said that people at her school pretend to be trans so they can fit in. Yeah. And, 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 and I was just, I just found that to be, to be fascinating on multiple levels. And when you, when you treat patients who suffer from this condition, is, 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 is it suddenly like one day they wake up and they're like, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake. I've removed my breast. I've had a double mastectomy. Or, or is it a kind of like slow, gradual, well, you know, I'm not sure. Or, uh, and, you know, the high from the testosterone is that like, 
is it like kind of one instant that's a revelation? Oh my God, what have I done? Or is it kind of gradual process? I've seen people who, when they climb on the operating table, they're really not sure that that's what they want to do. But yet the surgeons go ahead with it anyway. I have a patient who said to the people in the operating room, you know, I'm just not sure about this. I'm not sure this is the answer for me. And they said to him, you're going to be fine. And they went ahead and castrated and removed his penis. So there are people like that. And then there are people who over, you know, years, slowly, you know, they mature, their brain matures, they see more of life, they see that they still have the same mental health issues that they had before. They see that they have a ton of medical problems. They're having trouble finding a, a life partner. Okay, let, um, let me let me interrupt you. If if you don't mind, could you please rewind what you just said to the person getting on the table and they said just fine. How old was that person? Because that to me is absolutely like that to me is critical. Like was that like a 10-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 40-year-old? No, that was a man in his 20s with a long history of severe mental illness, but he was an adult. Whether he had the competency, the mental competency to sign on the dotted line, I would argue that he did not, but they did go ahead and do that. Now, surgeries on minors, gender surgeries on minors are mostly uh, mastectomies. If you want to talk about 12, 13, 14 year olds who are getting surgeries, we're not seeing. Um, you know, gender surgeries on on such young kids. We see that on the older 17, 18 year olds. I I don't, I may be wrong. There may be some instances of uh castrations and vaginoplasties, which is the construction of a fake vagina. Um in boys that are still minors, but it 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 wouldn't be well. See, part of the problem, Peter, is getting the numbers. That's getting, exactly. getting the numbers because these operations can be done in private clinics. Yeah, and the, the Tavistock <clears throat> debacle showed that, and my friend Andrew Doyle has written about that and and spoken to people on his show if you haven't made the connection with andrew i should we should definitely he's a he's such an interesting person to talk about and just briefly his one of the things andrew's gay and one of the things that he has spoken about elegantly is this is basically the castration of uh young gay kids i mean it's just it's just it's it's this is just you it really is uniquely horrific it's uniquely horrific. And the, the, the people who are speaking out against this, bigots, Nazis, racists, homophobes, as if race had anything to do with it, but it, it is, it is, um, it's uniquely horrific. And so one of the, th the, the takeaways that I got from your book, you lay out a, a kind of history for this and how we started thinking about this. And 
anybody who had literally spent five minutes thinking about you know lost in translation for those who are watching this i highly highly recommend this in fact uh i just spoke to brian callen who you were a guest on his show and uh, that book came up repeatedly in the in the interview it also made it quite an impact on him but um anybody who has looked at the history of this and looked at the fact that there's simply not only is there insufficient evidence to warrant belief in this but there's like anti-evidence i mean insofar as that can be something yes. that can be anti-evidence i mean yes. there's it, anti that, that's a good way of putting it anti-evidence and peter the reason why I'm hated and called names, even by people who you would think would be on the same side, is because I'm not mincing words. This is a black and white issue. This is evil. And I'm calling it evil. Yeah. So this is something that I, I think I know the answer to my own question, but I'm just going to phrase it generally. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, so Reed and I go around the world and we do this thing, Spectrum Street Epistemology, where we ask people questions and get their opinions about things and I interview people. And one of the things that I, I think about increasingly is why are things so ideological and political as opposed to just looking at the evidence? Like the left has completely glammed on a globed, I mean, they, they've they've just uh, like like an octopus. They've just completely wrapped their their intellectual and political tentacles. And my God, what a hill to die on uh, around this issue. And and the right has not. But if it's kind of like the early days of uh, anthropogenic warming, you would just although that's far more complicated because you actually have to know something about atmospheric chemistry and physics and such. But ideally, this wouldn't be a partisan issue people would just look at the evidence and fall on one side. But this issue, of all issues, this seems to be unbelievably partisan. Yeah. Whereas, so right there, that tells you that there's something, what explains the partisanship of this? It's, it's not, it has nothing to do with science or medicine or evidence. It's like a religion. It's a belief system. And you, and you have to believe in certain tenets of that belief system. Um, if you don't, you know, you're, 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 you're bad. You're, you're a non-believer. You're a heretic. You have to believe it. So the evidence, quote unquote, you know, in a religion, I mean, do we have evidence there's a soul? Some people may say we have some evidence, but basically we don't have hard evidence, right? And yet, you know, for certain religions, you must believe that we have a soul. We, you, and there's other, every religion has its beliefs. So this is a religion with its own beliefs. Yeah, and, and this, this seems to be a kind of trinity of critical social justice. Like this, the, the, the trans issue seems to be at the core of the belief system. It, it seems to be one of the core pillars that you have to believe this, even if you believe everything else in the suite of beliefs, it's vital to believe this. Well, yeah, because it's been, uh, you know, it's been added to the the menu of 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 uh, you know 
sexism and racism and all the other, you know, it's, it's uh, to be against these ideas, to challenge, not even against them, but to challenge them with evidence. Like you're sitting there, Peter, and you're saying, how, how is it that, I mean, this is anti-science. There's so much that says that this is, right. this stuff is not valid. Right. How is it that it still stands? Correct. It still stands because these people are not based in any kind of rational uh, system of uh, approaching this. It's a, it's a belief that this is true, that there's such a thing as gender, that it's separate from the body and that it overrides the body, period, end of story. And that you have to align the body to fit the mind. No discussion. No discussion. No discussion. Are, are, are you, um, are you, I, I, I find this, <laughs> this whole conversation so disturbing. No, I just find I just find this whole thing so disturbing. I mean, this is I keep using the word uniquely, but it's true. This is like a uniquely disturbing phenomenon. Which is why I had to write this book. I couldn't not write it. I, you know, writing it was uniquely disturbing mm. for many reasons. Seeing these patients and families is uniquely disturbing, but doing nothing is true, also true. uniquely disturbing. Yeah, that's right. I, I, that's right. So I just want to help. I just want to ask a few more questions just to help people try to clarify some of these issues for themselves because I'm struggling with clarifying it for, for myself. Is there a more rational conception of gender, like one, one connected with sex and biology, or should we just drop it entirely? Well, I think the mistake that we're making is that of course, there's a spectrum in terms of femininity and masculinity. There yeah. are, obviously there are more feminine, quote unquote, feminine boys and masculine girls, but that's personality. That has nothing to do with sex. Sex, we are mammals. Mammals are sexually dimorphic, which means male or female. Um, gender you know, is an inner experience. It's, you know, there's no hard science there. I mean, where is your gender? How do you measure it? How do you see it? How do you, if a child or anyone for that matter comes and says, my gender is X, Y, Z, how do you study that? How do you, how do you affirm that? You'd have to just, you can't, you, you know, if you're not going to, if you're going to have this separate idea separate from sex, which is what gender ideology is based on, that, that gender is completely separate from biology, well, then you're stuck in this situation of anyone could just come up and say, well, I'm this and I'm that, and it doesn't matter what their body says they are. But you see, we only do that with, with gender. We don't do that with eye color. I mean, I have brown eyes. Can I identify as someone with blue eyes? Everyone would say that's ridiculous. Can I identify as an Asian person? Can I identify, you know? So we have this belief system that says you can identify as something opposite 
than what your body is. And that takes priority. Everyone needs to accept that without any question. That is at the, you know, that is the crux, the foundation of this belief system of gender ideology, that biology doesn't matter, that physical reality doesn't matter. And you see, kids are believing that and they think they can deny their biology without paying a price. Yeah, but yeah. They have to understand you can deny it, but you're going to pay a price. It is interesting that biology is always the first target of attack from ideologues. That's all. It's never like electromagnetism or gravity or I don't know. It's all. It's always. It's always biology. It's always some. Uh, and then the reasons for that are almost exclusively moral. Um, wh- wh- a few more things. Um, what do you think people should know about this? That maybe that we haven't spoken about. Maybe a, a young person struggling with this, or a, a, a parent you know, trying to navigate this difficult yeah. reality, or maybe not even a, maybe a friend, maybe a friend. Well, well I, I would say, first of all, that no family is immune. And this happens, you know, in all kinds of families. Um, maybe more commonly in families in which the parents uh, are are liberal and support liberal causes and, you know, send their kids to schools that uh, promote uh, liberal causes and LGBT. You see, that's what, that's what is part of the big shock for these kids that a lot of them are so sure that their parents are going to accept their new identity because their parents have always been so LGBT uh, supportive and inclusive. And, uh, and, and now all of a sudden they announce their new identity and their parents are taken aback and don't want to automatically accept it. And the, and the kid thinks, Oh my gosh, I, I thought you were good people. Mm. You're, you're not really good people. So I would first tell families that no family is immune. I would I would warn parents that they have to be vigilant about what their kids are exposed to and that they want to reach their kid first. Before right. before the kid hears a phrase like sex assigned at birth. Right. I want kids to understand that sex is not assigned at birth. It is recognized sometimes, although usually it's months before birth, right, by ultrasound, but it is not assigned at birth. It is established at conception. I want kids to know that the very first moment that they existed on this earth, they were already either male or female. Again, I'm assuming they're not intersex, which is very rare. So kids need to know that so that, you know, when they hear this phrase, sex assigned at birth, I want kids to be able to say, huh? No, no, that's, that's not correct. I want to pick up the, the friend angle. Cause I think that this is really important. It, 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 
if a friend, if, 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 if somebody came to you in, in your clinical practice and said, my friend is thinking of transitioning uh, to another gender, you know, a 16 year old girl, for example, should I be supportive? What, what kind of, what kind of posture should I take toward that? Is there a, is there a, I don't know, fill in the blank. I don't even know how to finish the question. Well, that would be the beginning of a long discussion. Okay. You know, it would also depend on how long I've known this person and what our, what our relationship is and what her beliefs are. I mean, for a kid to come and ask that question to begin with would be very unusual. Okay. Most okay. kids are not. Most kids are going to automatically. Because, yeah. Because they've been led to believe that that's the only, you know, polite and decent, respectful. Yeah. Thing. That's the problem. And, and the problem, you know, I was thinking when you were speaking about getting them, getting to them before you're, before someone else does, the problem is that, this is ubiquitous in our school systems. This madness is everywhere. It's in elite private schools. And you would, I'm telling you, you would not believe the emails that I get from parents. I mean, they're just completely off the charts. And it's not like, well, we just take our kid out of school here and then we put him in school here and then everything's going to be fine very, very quickly. And there are reasons for that dealing with colleges of education and there are reasons for that in people in administration. But, um, I am incredibly sympathetic, as I'm sure you are, to parents who are going through this, to family members who are going through this, and, and, and of course, to the people going through it. I just want to say very very quickly, if, if anybody has a, a question they'd like to ask Dr. Grossman, we can do, do a super chat on that. Um, and I, so, so just po post those in the super chat. Sure. I, I would I, just oh, say, yeah, please. if I could throw something in there. Yeah. Okay, I see a lot of families who have, taken their kid out of school, homeschooled them, moved out of state, moved out of the country. Mm. Okay, that might do it. That that could do it. And I support them because in certain instances, this ideology is poisonous. Yeah, so that would be the question. Uh, that would be the question, Where where would one go? I mean... My, my friend, the Indian public intellectual Rajiv Maholtra, I wrote the afterward to his book, Snakes in the Ganga, which is an utterly remarkable book. And he talks about wokeism being an export. Uh, wokeism is really, or critical social justice and trans ideology, gender ideology is being exported all around the world right now. And there are very few places left. Certainly there, there's no places in the English speaking world. And so the, the question would be, where, where, where would one go? That's a separate conversation, but... Yeah. So, so moving, I mean, I mean, it, it may, I know people listening to this like move, I can't move. Okay. Well, if you don't move, there could be some pretty ghastly consequences to that. Um, and I am afraid of tick. We haven't talked about TikTok, but the social contagion being spread th specifically through TikTok. I am afraid that uh, of social contagions being spread by friends groups. I'm afraid of the numbers uh, continuing, continuing to increase, but only in certain cohorts, those younger cohorts and uh, um, young girls in particular. And, and I think we have a lot to 
to be concerned about, but is there anything we should be hopeful about? Is there anything, I, I guess one thing you said, you know, that, that, that uh, lawsuits are being filed. And so I guess we'd have to see the results of those, but is there anything that we should be hopeful about? No, of course, of course. I would say, first of all, and maybe this is more philosophical, but you see, I'm hopeful because I know that in the end, truth prevails and, you know, biology is, is truth and that that this ideology has no legs to stand on so ultimately it, it right. will collapse right it has to collapse um the the only question is how much what what the body count is going to be um and in right. terms of just going back a minute about moving because i know parents are listening you know sometimes it's helpful for the child to move because it gives them a chance to start over again. And sometimes that's all they need. They don't wanna go back to their old friend group in which they were known by a different name and different pronoun. They want to start new. And so when you move, that gives them that possibility. And some families, Peter, the parents actually end up, you know, one parent stays at home with the other kids and the other parent might take the child who's struggling over their gender and move away temporarily for a few months. And I've seen that sometimes be helpful. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I would love to get somebody on the show who is a psychiatrist who believes that we should support people's gender and gender forming care and medical interventions. If you have any suggestions for people like that, I'd like to invent, invite them on the show. If, if somebody's listening to this, uh, I'd love to invite them on the show. The problem is that they won't come, but still the, there's an invitation. If you're a psychiatrist, let me just say point blank. If you're a psychiatrist, you disagree with anything Dr. Grossman has said, uh, and not a psychiatrist, like an actual psychiatrist, an actual board certified psychiatrist, not someone who pretends to, you know, is an actor on a Broadway. And well, I have a name. <laughs> I have a name for you, Jason Rafferty. Jason a, Rafferty. We'll take that down. Okay. He's a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist. I'd love to have him on. Jason, you have an open invitation to the show. Open invitation. We'd love to have you on. Do you think he'll come on? Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. So why do you think they won't, why do you think these folks won't come on? Okay. But that's, isn't that standard for people who are on the left? They don't, they don't come on places. They're going to be challenged. They don't. I, I mean, wouldn't even necessarily challenge him. I just want to listen to, I just want to figure out what his reasons are. So I can already promise you, Dr. Rafferty, if you come on, you will receive minimal challenge from me. It's not a gotcha thing. I'm just going to try to figure out what the evidence is and why you believe it. And I'm not a board certified. I'm not even a physician. I'm nothing. I have like zero expertise in, 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 in the medical domain. And I would love to, to get your reasons for this and listen to you. And I will give you a platform. So there it is. There's an open invitation. Uh, okay. So right, well, he's going to, but he, he is going to say this is all evidence-based. He's going to say this well, is. Great. Then let him come on and, and, and say that. And, and then we can look at each individual piece of evidence and we can let people take a look at it. The, the problem is already, I can tell you that the, there's such a corruption in the peer reviewed 
journal process that he could be pointing to things that this is why this issue is so difficult to tease out. Um, it's, it, it, it makes it very difficult for people who want the best available treatment for their children and their loved ones when bodies of literature have become corrupt. And it's a well, very know, difficult he, problem. He would really be great because he wrote the American uh, Academy of Pediatricians 2018 guide guidelines oh, be on this on this issue. He would he would just be great. I would love to have him. And any anybody who's skeptical who thinks you don't really want him, I would if if you know if for no other reason if if what should assuage your skepticism is is if you think that I want views and quote unquote clicks, then why wouldn't I want this guy on? So I'd love to have him. All right, cool. We have a we have a, a, a super chat. Um, Reed, pull up the super chat for us. We can ask Dr. Grossman. Uh, I want to teach my kids about the birds and the bees to help preempt whatever nonsense they might learn elsewhere. How, oh, it's a great question. How early is it okay to give them full information about intercourse and reproduction? That's a terrific question. That's okay, well, Max. This, yeah, okay, this is, you know, this is a separate issue. This is sexuality versus gender. So right. I know people often, you know, group them all together, but I would say like this. Um, first of all, you want to know your child. Okay. You want to be the go-to person for your child when they have questions. Right. So you want to have a comfortable relationship open. Um, you want to, you want your child to feel like he or she can come to you, even if the question might be a little embarrassing or awkward, which it always is. And the way that you handle that is you say, oh, well, gosh, this is a little awkward, but I'm so glad you came to me because I want you to come to me with all these kinds of questions. That's great. I'm just going to repeat that because it's so important. This isn't, this is a little awkward. I see. I love stuff like this. Uh, <laughs> this is, a, this is a little awkward, but great. I'm so glad you came to me with this. Thank you. Yeah. Is that right? Is that, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, it depends on if you're talking about a four or five year old who, you know, saw a pregnant woman and, uh, is asking, you know, what's going on and how did that happen versus say 10 year old, you know, you have to know, know what your child is asking. Right. Um, sometimes they're asking something a lot simpler than you think. Do I have time to tell a little story? A hundred percent. My time is yours. Oh, okay, good. Um, and reads, go ahead, read. Go ahead. Okay. So once uh, a patient told me this, that um, their kid, their, their kid came to them and said, dad, where, where did I come from? And it was like, I don't know, a six-year-old, maybe seven-year-old. And the dad thought, okay, oh my gosh, this is the question, birds and the bees, where did I come from? Okay, I got to do this right. And he sits down with his son and he starts explaining all the all the good stuff. And he explains about intercourse and eggs and sperm. And the kid is listening and listening. And then the father's done. And the kid says, well, that's interesting because Jeffrey told me he came from Cincinnati. <laughs> okay. 
So you have to know what your child is asking you. So when they say, when they ask, where did ba- where do babies come from? Or, you know, where did I come from? Or how does the baby get out? Or some, you want to, you know, first of all, you want this to be, um, you're not talking about this while you're on your phone and you're scrolling through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is a good time to kind of sit down and have a nice time together, uninterrupted. Right, right. And you want to say, oh, wow, that's a great question. I'm not sure what, what you mean by that question. So what do you mean? And then when they say, well, you know, where where do babies come from? What's sex? What is sex? So find out what they already know. Okay, great question. Glad you asked me that. Could you tell me what you heard about sex? Could you tell me what you know about sex? And, you know, you, you may, you know, there's no... Um, stupid answer. When I was your age, I believe I heard all kinds of things. So tell me, like, what have you heard? What have you heard? And then you find out what the child knows, what's correct, what's incorrect. It's not a one-time conversation. Mm, Yeah. I think that's important. It's going to happen over time. Okay. And, you know, as the child becomes more sophisticated and has more questions now, if you explain what sex is, you know, in terms of the so the birds and the bees, et cetera, yeah. you know, it could be the kid, depending on the age, it's going to go in one year and out the other. So it's something that you're going to need to go through a number of times. It's a, it reminds me of the Monty Python. You ever watch Monty Python? Reminds yeah. me of the Monty Python skit where they're in sex ed and he's talking about sex and then he's having sex with a woman on the table and all the kids are bored and they're throwing papers around and he's just, you know, as if it were any other topic, <laughs> the kids discipline the kids like, like they, like, yeah, it's, it's a very, very, very uh, good thing. John, please. Is a, uh, well, I, funny you know, man. I did, I wrote it. My earlier book is, is about sex education. You're teaching my child. What just mm-hmm. came out in paperback. Um, so not so much about gender, only one chapter there about gender written in 2009. Mm. So that, that's a good book about sex education. It's interesting. One of the things I find interesting is, as you know, on the internet with the news cycle being what it is, everybody is all of a sudden an expert in everything, you know, Hamas, we have experts in that now all of a sudden. No, no matter plagiarism, everybody's an expert on that. No matter what IRBs, no matter what it is, everybody's an expert on that. And I find it so interesting how people have just gone crazy with thinking that they're experts, particularly on this subject, <coughs> which frankly, um, I can understand the confusion because of, again, the which I think is one of the main problems that we face now uh, engines of knowledge production have been compromised our peer-reviewed literature has been compromised i can i can genuinely understand the confusion for that but i think it's uh, we should be more humble about what it is that we claim to know and we should be more skeptical about what our institutions are telling us because there's a rot there's a deep-seated rot there and people are being demonstrably harmed Oh, you you do not want your child learning about sexuality from Planned Parenthood 
and any of those other organizations that are, uh, th their goal is to reach your child, influence your child, um, pump your child full of ideas that you very likely don't agree with. Or yeah, or even if you did agree with them, you would you would want to hold those beliefs because they were based in the uh, base because they were uh, predicated on the basis of the best available evidence, and that's just not what we see now. We we we. So yeah. I I I just it it it's it's really crowned by a kind of profound dishonesty. Um, all right, we have one more uh, from Max Woodbridge. Let's see here. And then uh, Dr. Grossman has been very generous with her time. So Max Woodbridge for 10 bucks. My thought was that teaching them the physical realities earlier than I had planned might give them a defense against gender ideology absurdities, which they will encounter far too young. Well, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, um, teach them the physical realities, which are very simple. Yeah. You, just, yeah. you can tell a little kid from the very moment you were inside your mommy's tummy or body or however you want to put it, you were either a boy or a girl. And that's wonderful. And there are all kinds of different boys. There's, there isn't only one way of being a boy or, or right. a girl. There's many different ways of being a boy or a girl. Yeah. When, when I grew up, we, we used to call them, I don't think people use this term over Tom, tomboys, uh, kind of yeah. masculine girls or girls who liked football were called tomboys. And that's fine. That's totally Correct. fine. If some boys are slightly more feminine, that's fine too. That doesn't mean that they need to undergo a surgical procedure. They're so Peter, fine. that's the thing. These, these kids are being told that if you don't fit into this stereotypical notion of what a girl is and what a boy is, you might very well not be a girl or a boy. Right. And that is just... Ghastly. Ghastly, yes. Yeah. Well, Dr. Grossman, thank you so much. I genuinely appreciate your time. And I want to thank you for your book. I learned quite a bit. Reed, could you pop her book up there on the on the screen? Uh, there it is, uh, Lost in Trans, Trans Nation. And Dr. Grossman is a psychiatrist and board certified physician. Where, where can people find you? Yes. They can find me on my website, Miriam. Okay grossmanmd.com lots of good stuff there including my testimony in congress uh, earlier this year on this matter i also want to say peter that um i i there's an audio version of the book oh which okay I, which i myself narrated oh okay my i read it i didn't listen to it yeah yeah my followers convinced me to do it, and I'm so happy I did Good. because I really, I really put my heart and soul into it. Well, thank, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you for having the courage to do that. And I'm profoundly grateful that you are engaged in the type of work that you're doing. And thank you so much for the conversation, Dr. Grossman. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. I enjoyed it very much. Great. So hold on there and uh, stay on and we'll talk to you later. And thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. And I'll see everybody soon. Thank you for watching. Everything we do is under the umbrella of the National Progress Alliance, nationalprogressalliance.org. It's a nonprofit, independent 501c3. 
Your generous donations keep us going and keep fueling content like this. So please help us out. Make a donation. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.